Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm really excited today. We have with us Trevor Barnes, who has been a producer, an author, a journalist, but most importantly for us, a historian of espionage, schooled by the fabulous Chris Andrew. He's worked on The Red Peril, the early history of the CIA, some crime thrillers. He's had such a diverse career, but we're here today to talk about his new book, Dead Doubles, which is out now, billed as the extraordinary worldwide hunt for one of the Cold War's most notorious spy rings. Hello, Trevor. Welcome. Hi, Alex. Oh, I'm so excited. Uh, just, do you know, when I, I first got the book and I looked at the, co- you know, when you go to the contents, you say, oh, well, yeah. how, what, how am I going to get guided through this? And I was just like, what? This sounds absolutely insane and brilliant. So I guess really we need to ask you, first of all, when is your book set and what is this spiring that you've uh, told us all about in the book? Well, the book is set at the height of the Cold War. So we talked about 1960-61, so 60 years ago, which seems a long way away. And in many ways, Britain was very, very different then to what it is today. The position of women, the position as well in terms of Britain and the West against the Soviet Union, because... The Cold War was at its coldest at that time. Uh, in 1960, the Russians had shot down this spy plane over Russia. Uh, the pilots captured by the Russians. There was lots of megaphone diplomacy. Fortunately, there was no really, really hot wars. But what it meant was, was that the two sides were, were desperately trying to get information and intelligence out of the other. Um, in this case... Obviously, the West were trying to find out anything they could about what was going on in the Soviet Union because the Iron Curtain really was an Iron Curtain. You just couldn't get anything out of the Soviet Union at that time. The, the people living there were under a really tight iron control, even more so than under Vladimir Putin. But equally, the Russians were desperately trying to get as many secrets out of the West as they could. And the background to this spy ring was that uh, Russia in particular was trying to upgrade their navy back in 1960, and, and Britain had centred all its unbelievably world-leading underwater research, torpedoes, sonar, submarines, that stuff, down on the coast of Dorset near, near Weymouth in this top-secret centre called the Underwater Detection Establishment. And that was where this spy ring, the Portland spy ring, had two of its spies. And essentially there were five spies in the ring. There were uh, two British people inside this base down in Portland, a man called Harry Houghton and his girlfriend stroke mistress called Ethel, nicknamed Bunty G. And then there were three others um, who it turned out as the investigation progressed were what were called KGB illegals. The KGB was the Soviet Union's all-powerful spy agency and uh, they had this thing of having spies who were called illegals. That's to say, people who adopted the identity of a completely different human being 
and then went to live in another country and pretend to be that other person. A bit like in the Americans. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the Americans, uh, which I don't know a number of your listeners might have, have listened to, that in some ways was based on cases like these, these three spies in the Portland spy ring, but they were rounded up in 2010. Um, interestingly, the Americans were set in the 1980s. Uh, but the thing about the Russians is they made a speciality of having these illegal spies. They've done it since 1917 and the Bolshevik Revolution, and they've made a speciality of it. And their spying in this area has traditionally been of an incredibly high quality and, and great value to Russia. Let's break down the book because it's in a number of sections which make it really easy to sort of grasp what's going on. So presumably the authorities become aware that there is something fishy going on because the first part of the book is dedicated to the investigation. Absolutely. I mean, I've tried to tell the story a bit like a novel in some ways. Uh, it's got certain similarities with detective story because a lot of it's based on the hitherto secret files of Britain's domestic security service called MI5, which have been released. And it all starts when... A most remarkable about the files is you can follow the investigation, Alex, step by step. It really is very, very exciting and quite enthralling and breathtaking as you sort of follow the MI5 investigators on their trail of, of these spies as they piece the clues together. So it started in 1960 down at Portland where, and this has a contemporary ring as well, someone working down there got an anti-Semitic letter uh, with a swastika on and the word Jew and the person who got this was understandably very distressed about this, so um, brought this to the attention of the authorities. And, and anti-Semitism wasn't for MI5 to investigate. But the other allegation made by the person who got the letter was, because the person who got the letter said, I think I know who sent me the letter, this guy called Harry Houghton, who works down here. And also, I want you to know that back in 1956, so four years before he got this anti-Semitic letter, Harry Houghton was uh, alleged to uh, have taken files, top secret files, without authority. So this stuff came up to London, to MI5, and because the allegations weren't properly authenticated, there wasn't much evidence, MI5 were frankly not that interested, but they thought in the end they'd make a, a start on investigating Houghton. But then there was this explosion because they got some top, top secret information from the CIA. And so how does the investigation play out and how do they begin to identify who they think might be guilty? Well, it's bit by bit, chain by chain. So the CIA had this agent codenamed Sniper and the CIA didn't know uh, whether it was a woman or a man or anything about them. But this agent Sniper started feeding really valuable information about what was going on in Russia and in Eastern Europe to the CIA. And then at the end of April 1960, they, uh, the CIA got from Sniper this absolutely precious intelligence, which they immediately passed to the British, which said that there is a spy in the British Admiralty somewhere actively spying now. And this person was recruited in Warsaw in Poland in the early 50s, then came back to the UK and was picked up and controlled by the KGB. And this person's name begins with an H, something like Hupkenner or something like that. So MI5 immediately went straight to the British Admiralty files in London, went through all the possible 
people and they came up with just one prime suspect and that was Harry Houghton. So they immediately bugged his telephone because he lived in this cottage quite near Weymouth. They also intercepted his mail and these interceptions said to MI5 uh, various things about Houghton, the fact that he had this girlfriend, uh, SMG, but above all, that Houghton was coming up to London at the start of July 1960. So he was tailed by MI5. MI5 had this department called the Watchers. If any of your listeners read John the Carey books, you find out that in those books, John the Carey talks about the lamplighters, where their real name was the Watchers. And this is uh, men, women had recently joined the Watchers as well, women joined. So they had both sexes and they were in a, in a fleet of cars that was based down in Vauxhall. And they started tailing Houghton and G. And Houghton and G came up to London and in early July, they went to the Old Vic Theatre and they were seen by the Watchers to meet an unknown man. And the only clue to his identity that MI5 had was this guy's number plate. And this car belonged to a man who was supposed to be a Canadian businessman by the name of Gordon Lonsdale. So at that stage, MI5 had three spies in their net. They had Harry Houghton, Ethel G, and this man, Gordon Lonsdale. So, of course, they started collecting information about Lonsdale, piecing all that stuff together. The lead MI5 investigator was a guy called Charles Elwell, and part of the research was fascinating, finding his family, and they, they shared his private archives with me, his diaries and that sort of stuff. But the weird thing that happened was hardly had they got Gordon Lonsdale on the screen. He came up to London again at early August and the watchers tailed him to a restaurant near Waterloo and sat down so close to uh, Harry Houghton and to Lonsdale. They could hear snatches of their conversation. Uh, Harry Houghton was overheard to say, I've got, quote, plenty, close quotes, in my attaché case for you tonight to talk about future meetings. But at that stage, suddenly, Lonsdale just disappeared on a Friday afternoon at the end of August, having been to a bank in central London, seemed to go in with three packages and come out with nothing. And so that was when there was the first real breakthrough of MI5's investigation. It's mad. Actually, this book really does read like a Le Carre book, doesn't it? Um, who are Morris and Lona Cohen? Just stepping back a moment, um, we've got three spies so far in the ring. Yeah. The breakthrough uh, came in in September 1960 because Lonsdale had disappeared. He'd gone abroad, but no one knew where the hell he'd gone. Uh, intercepted phone calls suggested he'd gone abroad for six weeks, uh, possibly to Canada, but he hadn't gone to Canada. Uh, one fascinating aspect of this research and the book as well as the incredible international scope of it. I mean, it's stretched from New Zealand where the New Zealand Security Service got involved, the Canadians, the Mounties, they have an intelligence service, the CIA, the FBI, it really did span the globe. But anyway, MI5 decided to go into the bank where these things were uh, placed by Lonsdale and they found a treasure trove of KGB spy paraphernalia, coding pads, photographs and that sort of stuff. But to answer your question about who the Coens were, when he came back to this country in the middle of October 1960, mm. 
the Gordon Lonsdale took a flat in a big block of uh, apartments near Regent's Park and he kept disappearing every night. And MI5 was scared stiff of alerting this guy Lonsdale because by this stage, the security service were convinced that he was one of these deep cover, highly trained Russian illegals and therefore would be on alert for the smallest suspicious sign that he was on the radar screen of MI5 and that he might just disappear. So they're really, really careful about following and they didn't want to risk anything. So they had radio blackouts for the cars of the watchers and they traced Lonsdale. They followed him just a bit further every night when he disappeared and they tracked him out to northwest, <clears throat> they tracked him out to northwest London to this sleepy suburb called Ryslip. And they kept watch on. <laughs> Sorry, I just laugh because I've been there. Very sleepy it is. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, it's interesting the people who live there now because I went there to research it. Anyway, they they set up an observation post in the bungalow opposite to the road where they had traced Lonsdale to. And then one Sunday afternoon, they saw Lonsdale come out of the front door of number forty-five Cranley Drive in. Uh, in Rice Slip. Now lived in, by the way, by a London Underground driver. He's a charming guy and his wife who showed me around the house. <laughs> and so um, they, MI5, knew at that stage this is where Gordon Lonsdale goes. And this house was lived in by a couple who were called Peter and Helen Kroger. Now your question was, who on earth were the Coens? Well, the answer is the Coens were actually Peter and Helen Kroger. That were their real names, the Coens. Uh-huh. But this was only found out when the ring was arrested in January 1961. And the reason they were rounded up in a bit of a panic by MI5 was that you might remember the, K, the CIA spy I talked about, his code name was Sniper. Yes. Well, he suddenly at the start of 1961 said to the CIA in Berlin, I'm going to defect tomorrow. Get ready. I'm coming out. I think I've been exposed. So you can imagine, you know, alarm bells ringing down in uh, in Berlin, over 900 miles to the east of London, but also in MI5 headquarters, because they, MI5, knew that as soon as this guy defected, Moscow Centre, as it's called, that's KGB headquarters, would immediately get their top investigators going over all the intelligence, the information that this person's sniper could have passed to the West. And therefore, the KGB might send an alarm signal to London and tell uh, their three illegal spies, Gordon Lonsdale. And by the way, at this stage, MI5 didn't know who this guy really was. That was also another exciting uh, investigative process that MI5 had to follow. But uh, this guy Lonsdale and the two Krogers, real name, the Coens, would do a flit and just disappear. But in fact, the, the real identity of the Coens is only found out after they were arrested on the 7th of January 61, because when they were arrested, they refused to let anyone take their fingerprints. So they had to go to court. The court ordered them to be fingerprinted. And then there was a ka moment because um, the fingerprints were taken back to New Scotland Yard's fingerprint division. They went through all their fingerprints and there was this magic moment when they realised there was a match because two years before, the FBI had circulated all around the world the fingerprints of Morris and Lona Cohen as suspected top-ranking KGB spies 
who had done a flit from America in 1950. So the FBI had been hunting the Cohens since 1953 at least. And then when MI5 had basically caught this spy ring in their net in January 61, they discovered that at least two out of the five, um, the Krogers, proved not to be little tiny minnows, but two great fat mackerel that the FBI had been searching all around the world for for years. You have a section in the book, don't you, on the FBI hunt for them. It was not a small endeavour. No, no. I mean, the, uh, that in itself was, was amazing. It's led by this remarkable FBI guy called um, Al Belmont, who had joined the FBI in, in the 30s and he'd done everything from break prostitution rackets to before he got started on the hunt for the amazing KGB, very successful KGB penetration of um, American military and other facilities during World War II. Uh, the highlight of which, of course, from the Russian point of view, was their remarkable penetration of the American atomic bomb project down in Los Alamos, um, which uh, it turned out they had a number of agents in who were feeding top secret information to the West. And one of those agents was indeed Lona Cohen. And it's a remarkable story, which I, I pieced together in the book, of how she actually smuggled out of Los Alamos the first ever complete plan of the American atomic bomb for the Russians. It's just insane. It's such a good story. So they have been caught now. Yep. Tell us about the trial. Well, the trial took place in March 1961, Alex, and it made headlines all around the world. I mean, as you said, it was a astounding story. And yeah. journalists like a good story. Uh, the only country that didn't cover the trial and send uh, anyone from the news agency was, surprise, surprise, the Soviet Union. Funny that. And Russia. <laughs> uh, yeah, strange coincidence. Uh, but understandably so, because as I said, back in 1960, uh, the Soviet Union was hermetically sealed away from the West. So trial happened. Uh, it's quite interesting in the file because you find out that um, this idea of media manipulation by the government is nothing new. I mean, it took quite a while for the government to realise this is uh, the government of Harold Macmillan, by the way. So he was then the Conservative Prime Minister to realise how embarrassing this penetration of Portland was for the government uh, and for the Admiralty. It really was potentially a, a massive banana skin. So they had to manage the trial carefully, in particular the information they allowed the jury to hear and allowed the journalists to get hold of. So there was no mention of, for example, any of the buggings of the telephones, interception of the mail of the, the spies. And above all, there was no mention at all, not a whisper of the incredibly important role of Britain's code-breaking agency at GCHQ. And when you research this area, you find out that GCHQ is the most secret of secrets. It's really hard to find out anything at all. It's released very much at all into the files. Uh, but I was lucky enough to find in one particular uh, set of documents some references to the key role that GCHQ played and, and get new information about it. So that was all kept back from the jury. The trial happened. Uh, the uh, two spies, Harry Houghton and Ethel G, went in the witness box. They basically tried to say, look, um, Harry Houghton said, oh, I didn't do this um, for any reason other than pressure, duress. Uh, dodgy people came to basically beat me up. 
And then it was me, Harry Houghton, who persuaded my girlfriend, who's completely innocent, really, Ethel G, to smuggle these documents out. Uh, the three KGB illegals uh, didn't go in the witness box because uh, then they could be cross-examined. Instead, they just stood up in the witness box and, and gave statements. And what uh, Lonsdale did was, was try and take all the blame. He tried to say that the, the Krogers, otherwise known really as, as the, the, the Cohens, um, were, they were innocent. Basically, I, I planted all the spy equipment that was found in their bungalow. But the jury had nothing to do with it. They didn't believe uh, a word of it, essentially. And they found them guilty after 45 minutes um, out in the jury room. And they were given really swingingly tough sentences. Uh, the uh, leader, really, if you like, Gordon Lonsdale, was given 25 years. And it was so unexpected, there were gasps of surprise from the, the will of the court. 20 years each to the two Krogers, because they weren't tried in their real name of the Cohens. They were tried as the Krogers because uh, the prosecution were afraid that if any hint of their KGB background in the States was known to the jury, that would influence them and prejudice the result of the trial. And the two Brits, Harry Houghton and Ethel, were each given 15 years. And then the next stage of the uh, dance really began because MI5 wanted to try and persuade any of these five spies to start telling them what really happened and confess. And so that's another amazing story in itself. So now really becomes the time when I guess you've caught them and you've punished them for now. We'll come back to the spies. But um, you've got to pick apart what the hell went wrong, haven't you? Make sure it doesn't happen again. Well, when this story came out in the newspapers um, in March, there was, of course, a huge brouhaha because it was so embarrassing. There were a whole load of questions to be asked. I mean, you know, uh, what about these Cohens? I mean... Uh, why did they actually end up having New Zealand passports? Because when they all got arrested, they were found to have New Zealand passports. Why were they allowed in? Mm. Next question, why didn't GCHQ pick up the radio transmissions earlier from the bungalow in Ryslip? Because about a week after the arrest of the Cohen's, down in their cellar, hidden away in an expertly prepared cavity um, with a concrete lid, was this state-of-the-art radio transmission equipment got found. You could basically send a message by radio that would normally take 20 minutes to send in just a few seconds, a sort of back squeak of, of, of noise, and then it had gone off to Moscow. So, you know, that was that. Then, did MI5, did they behave properly? Should they, could they have arrested these people earlier? So, loads of questions, and a top-secret inquiry was held in Whitehall, all behind closed doors, and there was this parade of top-secret people who came along and remarkably in the National Archives at Kew uh, the Cabinet Office papers has the evidence given by these people word for word that I came across. They had a stenographer in the room and it's like being in the room with them, you know, you, you follow exactly what they said and one of the witnesses for example was the head of MI5 uh, a guy called Sir Roger Hollis later in my view falsely accused of being a KGB mole himself he had to come and give evidence five times to this committee. And this inquest happened. And essentially, it was very, very well conducted. And I think it's a tribute to our democracy that uh, the whole of this inquiry has now been made public. So you can go to the archives and find out what happened. The KGB, of course, had a very similar inquiry going on, I discovered, in Moscow. But, of course, I got a few hints of that from 
a couple of former KGB people who finally agreed to talk to me in Moscow. Uh, but of course, that's never, ever been officially published in Russia and almost certainly never will. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We've so got to touch on the Russian interpretation of this story um, before we finish. But I just want to... So you would throw away the key, wouldn't you? You're spies. You've betrayed your nation. Get in jail. We never want to hear from you again. But then politics comes into play, doesn't it? Well, absolutely, because MI5, CIA, FBI, there were loads and loads of things they really wanted to find out from these spies, because none of them, uh, certainly before the trial, agreed to cooperate in any way whatsoever. And clearly MI5 wanted to know, for example, how long the uh, three KGB spies, the illegals had been spying, what techniques they'd used, what agents they had. Um, Would they say anything? And similarly, would Harry Houghton and G confess? So then we started this rather elaborate dance behind the scenes with the CIA investigator, Charles Elwell, going in under a, under a pseudonym. He, he went under the name of Mr. Elton to go and talk to them. And at the beginning, Gordon Lonsdale um, suggested he was going to cooperate. And Elwell, who I found out was an absolutely top-ranking superlative counter-espionage investigator, very astute. He, meanwhile, was trying to find out the real identity of this guy, Gordon Lonsdale, because his view was that if this became known to Lonsdale, that the West knew who he really was, this would make it far more likely he'd cooperate because the KGB back in Moscow might say, oh, OK, the West now knows who this guy is, then we can cut him off, basically. We don't trust him anymore. And so there was an incredibly fascinating investigation that Elwell led, which resulted in the fact that he found out that uh, the real name of this guy was Konon Trofimovich Morody, and he'd been born in Russia, and his parents, because they were so poor and hungry in the early 30s in Russia, there were famines everywhere, basically agreed to send young Konon over to California, of all places, to live with his aunt, who was a ballet teacher. And it was there that he learned English. His English was fluent. But at the end of the 30s, young Conon decided to come back to Russia. He was a patriot, a strong patriot underneath, uh, with threat of Nazism. He wanted to basically come home. He fought with the Russian army. Um, And he'd then been recruited, obviously, by the KGB after the war. So all of this emerged. But in fact, um, Elwell and MI5 tried to get the Home Office to agree a a far more generous deal for Lonsdale than 
they were willing to give. And so at the end of the day, they couldn't offer this guy, Gordon Lonsdale, real name, Conor Molody, a sufficiently generous deal. So in the end, nothing happened. Uh, similarly, Houghton and G refused to confess. They sort of played around suggesting they might cooperate. And the Cohens, who were ideologically committed communists and had been that way since the late 30s, right through the war, spying for the Soviet Union. And after the war, before they left, uh, did a flip from America in 1950, they weren't going to cooperate either. So the scene was then set for spy swaps. Yes, so tell us how much spy swapping goes on in the aftermath. Well, the incredible thing about this case is you can, and I think this is unique in my knowledge uh, as an espionage historian, Mm. With these files, for the first time, a Western intelligence counter-espionage agency has released pretty much all its files on uh, an investigation from first clue, arrest, or from first clue, investigation, arrest, trial, prison, and then you even get these amazing spy spots. And the first of these involved Gordon Lonsdale. And essentially, the Russians who are very adept at this, realised that the only way they'd be able to get a spy squad was by having a player, if you like, on their side on the international spy squad chessboard. And in 1962, the Russians arrested a man called Greville Wynne in Hungary. Now, Wynne had been acting as a courier for MI6, Britain's Foreign Intelligence Service, getting secrets from... Um, an agent, very important agent called Penkovsky in Russia. And uh, to cut a long story short, uh, Penkovsky was uh, betrayed, he was tortured, he revealed the name of Wynne. Wynne was arrested in Hungary, hauled back to the Soviet Union, big show trial, and Wynne was sent to a very tough prison and his health was declining pretty rapidly. Uh, The Russians were very adept at uh, placing stories in Western newspapers to influence public opinion, what the KGB called and still call active measures. And the net result was that in the end, the uh, British government in April 64 agreed to a spy swap. So it's Greville win for Gordon Lonsdale. And Lonsdale was flown out to Berlin and he had one of these classic spy swaps uh, at this uh, place in, in Berlin called the Heerstrasse at dawn in April 64, and so Gordon Lonsdale was out of jail, but that left the two Cohens waiting in a British jail. I just, I, I'm not gonna, I don't want you to tell us what happens in the end to them, because I think people should buy the book, because it just sounds absolutely brilliant. But we have to talk, don't we, about Russian versions of the truth, because you have a whole section on this at the back, because needless to say, they don't agree, do they? with everybody else's interpretation. Well, that's exactly right. And one of the challenges as a historian, and one of the reasons why I was really keen to investigate and write a history of this, is that with a lot of these spy cases, you don't get Russian sources. Um, I mean, one of the interesting, one of the many, many facets of the story that's interesting is, of course, the Portland spy ring were arrested and put on trial just a little before the exposure of the spy called George Blake. Now, he'd confessed to MI6 immediately after, this is in terms of timing, after the Portland spy ring trial. 
And then he was put on trial as well, and that made more headlines around the world. The difference was that his trial was almost completely in secret, unlike the Portland Spy Ring, which was almost completely open. And this, in turn, just distracted uh, information from the Portland Spy Ring case. But the point is, there is nothing that's been released from the Russian archives about George Blake, whereas there was material from the KGB files about Houghton and G that had been released. And also, it turned out that these three KGB illegals, so Conlon Molody, Morrison, Lona Cohen, after they got back to the Soviet Union, became heroes of the Soviet Union. And they are now icons of uh, nationalist fervor, really, and, and intelligence adulation, uh, intelligence service adulation in Vladimir Putin's Russia. And they had stamps uh, revealed in their, they had stamps with their faces that were uh, made and, and issued in, in Soviet Union. There are books praising their uh, skills and abilities. And even I discovered in 2017 a special exhibition called Golden Spies of Russia, uh, which had portraits of, of, of these three spies there. But... That the challenge for a historian is that you have to winnow out the truth. Now, a number of people about uh, looking into spy histories basically dismiss almost all of the Russian sources. They say it's a poisoned well of, of evidence. And my approach was that that's too simplistic because a number of the accounts in Russian only are by former KGB officers who knew exactly what was going on. And if you triangulate the evidence that they produce with other material, I think it's possible to get a pretty accurate view from a Russian point of view of what went on. And so that's what I've tried to do in the book. And when you piece together these Russian bits of the jigsaw, Alex, you do find that uh, the story of the espionage, what these three uh, KGB illegals did as spies, and also what Harry Houghton and Ethel G achieved, becomes much clearer. For example, the industrial size and number of documents that Harry Houghton and G got out to the West is, is remarkable. Secondly, you find, for example, that the the story of, of, of Molody and his career, how he got recruited by the KGB in, in the late 40s, early 50s, was trained as an illegal, came to Britain to run this spy network, how the Kroger's real name, the Cohens, having got back to the Soviet Union after they fled from America in 1950, were kicking their heels, wanting another assignment, how the KGB then trained them up, especially to be the communications operators for the Portland spy ring, how they met up in London. All of this is you can piece together from the Russian sources. It's absolutely fascinating to, to find. And also meeting some former... KGB officers, uh, one in particular called Mikhail Yubimov, who was an exact contemporary within the KGB of the famous defector Oleg Gordievsky, which uh, a lot's been written about. And this guy Yubimov met me in Moscow and he had met uh, Konon Molody because Molody, after he went back to the Soviet Union and the KGB, um, acted as a trainer at the Academy for Spies, which the KGB was running. So it's rather a magic moment because there was this direct link that I'd established with 
this mysterious Gordon Nons. This whole book is just so exciting. I have to doff my cap to you. Um, I know you, you spoke you to... Oh, it just it really does read like a spy novel. And I think anyone listening with an interest in the Cold War, just run out, buy it, do it, do it, do it now, preferably from an independent bookshop, of course. I have to ask, though, did you... you Obviously, you said you spoke to some former KGB agents. Did you find any opposition when you were doing the Russian part of your research? I wouldn't say opposition, but there clearly was a very strict limit as to who I could talk to and when and how. So, for example, I approached in the end the press bureau of Russia's equivalent of MI6. And believe it or not, there is one. MI6, uh, understandably, doesn't have a press bureau. But uh, the modern uh, Russian version of MI6 called the SDR does. So... um, they agreed to see me very briefly, and it was fascinating going in there. They confirmed that there was not a hope in hell of me getting anywhere near the KGB archives on the case. And they, they offered me some very, very limited cooperation. But they were, they were very kind in a kind of uh, way, trying to make sure that uh, they knew what I was doing. They did give me access to a few photographs I wouldn't otherwise do. And I did meet. One, very briefly, a, a former KGB agent who'd operated in Germany in the 1950s. But there were, there were some strange things happening. Like, for example, I discovered that the daughter of Conrad Molody is still alive. Her name is Isabetta, and she lives about 50, 60 miles outside Moscow. And when I was with some of my contacts on one visit to Moscow, they actually rang Elisabetta and spoke to her on the phone. And she seemed quite willing, in principle, to meet me. So when I went back to Moscow the next time, I uh, asked these contacts of mine to uh, ring Elisabetta up and see if she'd talk to me. Because I thought, you know, there might be some really interesting photographs um, and also her memories of her father. But mysteriously, none of these phone numbers worked anymore, Alex. And it just wasn't possible to make contact with her. She that seemed is to so have odd. disappeared. <laughs> and then there was a, another former officer I was due to meet, all fixed. And then on the day I was due to meet him, some problem had, had emerged. And so I had that, no one actively opposed what I was trying to do because I think on the one hand, they wanted the story of these three amazing KGB legals, illegals, namely that of Conor Molody and the, and the two Cohens, of which the Russians and the Russian intelligence service are immensely proud, partly genuinely, I think so, because their achievements as spies was quite remarkable, uh, wanted to be told by a Western historian in as reasonably a fair way as they could, but they obviously didn't want me to find out stuff that would um, belittle and blemish their reputations. So it was a fine balance to be struck, I think. But um, I certainly got some new material out of Russia, which I didn't necessarily expect to get when I started on this quite long voyage of discovery. Sometimes you've just got to take what you can get as a historian. And I just I don't think the book suffers for it at all. I think it's a fantastic story. So thank you so much for coming on to give us an overview of it. By no means have you heard everything. You do need to really get stuck into a copy of this book. Tell everybody what it's called again. It's called Dead Doubles. The Extraordinary Worldwide Hunt for One of the Cold War's Most Notorious Spy Rings. It's been a pleasure.
to talk to you. Oh, thank you. And that is available everywhere. Um, but obviously, independent bookshops are best because we always like to say that on History Hat. Use them or lose them. Trevor, thank you. Thank you. And join us tomorrow. There's a lot of attention this weekend being put on the Mount Battens. And Andrew Loney will be with us to talk all about his book, which is now out in paperback, which looks extensively at these peripheral royals. So don't miss out on that. And then join us down the pub where they asked for it. They thought they were being hilariously funny, regaling us with stories about killer squirrels from history. And so therefore, down the pub, we will be talking all about the most epic animals in history. Uh, They called my bluff. And I saw them and I raised them, so join us for that. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com.